Today is an exciting Sunday. Today we're kicking off our fall series here at Collective Church. It's going to be eight weeks long. And the title of the series is How to Read the Bible, Navigating the Library of Scripture. Now, before we get into uh, the first teaching, I've got three big announcements today that go with, coincide with the launch of this series. So here's what you can do for me. I'm, I rarely will do this, if ever, in my teaching. And so you get out your phone, you go to collectivechurch.com slash current series. We always talk about it. And then um, now I'm getting it into your search, into your history. So it's there. So if you go to collectivechurch.com slash current series on your phone, here's what you'll find there. At the top section is the overview of the series with a couple of things I'll talk about in a minute. At the bottom are resources. You're going to find podcasts, videos, blogs. There's a documentary about the manuscript evidence of the New Testament narrated by John Reese davies Gimli. It's awesome. Fragments of Truth, you're welcome. Stream for free. Um, there's a bunch of resources there, but the one that I want to call your attention to is right in the middle. It is our practices for the series. Because every teaching series, the goal is not information in your head, but the formation of your life and your character. And practices are how we do that. For this series, we have five practices that we've scheduled that coincide with the series for you to go through with your discipleship group each week. And so for some of you, you may want to open that up and read it before you gather. For some of you, you want to open that in the discipleship group and literally use it as a discussion guide. Whatever it is, that this series will only be as good, I promise you, as your connection is to our discipleship group and uh, going through these practices where we actively implement what we're learning together and we discuss that. So that's current series, and each week you'll see there's a schedule where you can open those up. And again, if, if you were like, oh, I want to do that, I'm not in a discipleship group, there's this handy little QR code in front of you uh, with the next steps, and there's also stuff for the discipleship group uh, there that you can fill out as well. So that's the first one for our series. The second is a book club that we're starting through Dan Kimball's How Not to Read the Bible. So we're doing a series called How to Read the Bible, and we're doing a book club called How Not to Read the Bible. Uh, Dan Kimball's How Not to Read the Bible, Making Sense of the Anti-Women, Anti-Science, Pro-Violence, Pro-Slavery, and Other Crazy-Sounding Parts of Scripture. Um, this book is fantastic. I, I like could just recommend it, but then I was like, you know what, we're just gonna, we're gonna read it together. So it's gonna be a six-week book club. Uh, you'll see on the overview part of the website, there's a yellow button that's a pop-up to fill out registration. If you fill that out like today and order the book today, um, we're gonna schedule a starting point in about two weeks um, for this within six weeks. If there's enough people and enough differences in scheduling, we may even do it on different nights and have two different groups that are going through it. Um, so that, you know, for instance, like with us and our kids, Aaron could go one night and I'd take the kids, she could go the other. But a lot of that depends on how many people and, and what availability looks like. Um, this book is, I could just talk about it, but just get it. I mean, the whole book is, he begins most chapters with looking at like, like famous memes that you see on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. They're like, you know, why you can't trust the Bible. And he basically goes, okay, let's examine that. And so just as like a teaser, the first chapter is never read a Bible verse or you'll have to believe in magical unicorns. Get this book. Um, so the, uh, you can buy this um, just about everywhere. Um, there's one link to on the current series page. I was, in all my research, I found they're doing 50% uh, off 
$10, which is awesome, but order it today because, you know, they're not, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, drones flying around to get here in two days. Like, it'll take a minute. Um, so order that. All right, finally, last big uh, kickoff before we get into the teaching of the series. Uh, today, as we launch uh, this series on the Bible, today we're announcing that we're making a move to a new default translation here at Collective Church. Moving from what has been our default translation for the past seven years, the ESV, the English Standard Version, to the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Now, though there's nothing inherently wrong with this, isn't like, you know, we were reading the ESV and we found unicorns in it or something, and we're like, we can't use this anymore. Um, really, what this was motivated in was, was just a belief that the CSB is going to serve as a more helpful translation in the life of our church. Uh, to use a, a quick analogy, Bible translations are like golf clubs. They do different things differently. And uh, so the, whatever your main one is, the default in your church is kind of like your driver. It's what you're using to get the furthest down. And then you kind of use your, your putters and uh, you know, your clubs to kind of get a little bit closer in towards the hole. And so the whole point was we were using the ESV as our primary driver. And we realized it's not working uh, specifically as leaning towards being readable for modern people. It's really good at real strong accuracy to the original text, but it, it just, it's a little too wooden. There's a couple little interpretation, translation things that we were just kind of like, ah, you know. So anyway, CSB, here's what this means. This is not everyone go home and throw out your ESV Bible. If you love your ESV Bible, continue to use that. My wife has had hers for years. She's like, I'm not getting rid of it. I'm like, all right, that's okay. Uh, the main thing is just the CSB is going to be what we preach from. It's going to be obviously what we recommend. For some of you on your phones, this is literally like new, you know, new translation. It's easy as like boop, beep, boop on your like version app. And now you have the CSB. Some of you do prefer a physical Bible. On our website, we have some recommended. Um, you can look over the publisher and what they have there. We also have at collectivechurch.com slash CSB kind of a overview of why we made the decision and where, where we go from here, big decisions. So some of you, you're like me, this feels like a really big decision. Some of you are like, whatever, like, you know, it's still Bible. Where, whoever you are, you can head to that and uh, that'll explain some of our reasoning a little bit more for the move to the CSB. Um, in the future, we're gonna have the loaners in the back be CSB. Uh, shipping delays mean uh, we'll have that next week. And then we're also gonna be doing some giveaways of the CSB in the coming weeks too. So uh, all the more reason for you to be here uh, next week to get, get a free Bible. So those are my announcements, all right? We've got current series updated, practices for discipleship groups. We've got a book club kicking off and we've got a new default translation. Speaking of the CSB, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter four, beginning in verse one. And once you find yourself there, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, as we kick off our series, How to Read the Bible. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and he had him standing on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and the angels came and began to serve him. Let's pray. So fathers, we begin this new series, Learning to Read the Scriptures. We pray that today you would help us that uh, today would serve as a, as, a, as a good first step uh, in this journey of learning to read the Bible the way Jesus did. God, that we would bring today an awareness of the paradigms that we bring to the Scripture, our relationship to your Word, so that uh, just in this time of reflection together, we might begin to poke and prod and examine the way that we come to the Scriptures and, and what it might mean to receive from Jesus a way to read them that's more fitting, that's more fulfilling. We pray you'd be with us today. God, that as we come together each week, that your word would continue to speak. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and take a seat. Now, beginning a new series on how to read the Bible, I totally get how much this feels like a strange passage to begin with. This seems to be more fitting with our spiritual warfare class with uh, Dr. Gary Bashir's last week than a sermon series on the Bible. Sermon series on how to read scripture, and we start with Jesus fighting the devil out in the desert. However, this passage is vital for all who disciple or apprentice under Jesus, because in the spiritual showdown, we see how Jesus understood the scriptures. After fasting for 40 days, going without food, uh, reflecting on what we see at the end of chapter 3 in verse 17, Jesus' baptism and a voice from heaven that speaks over him, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus has spent 40 days fasting and prayerfully meditating on this statement, that he is the beloved son of God the Father in whom he's well pleased. And so he is spiritually strong, but 40 days without food, he is hungry. And so the first temptation that comes from the devil in verse 3 is to use his power as the Son of God to meet his physical needs, to turn these stones into bread. But what is Jesus' response in verse 4? It is written. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. In doing this, he likens the bread that he's you know, being tempted with. He's comparing it with this, uh, this word from God that comes from the mouth of God he, what he, is what he says. He likens the, the gift of the scriptures as the manna that was given to the Israelites when they, just like Jesus, was led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness for testing. Jesus says, this is the thing that I need. The sustenance most vital to me is the word that comes from God. For Jesus, what is written is his most necessary sustenance. When we think about how Jesus responds and Jesus reflects on what the Bible is to him, for him, the scriptures are a source of his delight, of his dependence, of his defense. His, you know, it defines him, fill in all the other D alliterations that you want, and then you know, add identity. There's a D that's the second letter. But for Jesus... This is his authority. It, it grounds him. It's, it is, what we find is you, he's in the desert being tempted, and the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, it is written. He quotes from Scripture, and in his quote from Scripture, the quote from Scripture is about how necessary and sustaining the Word of God is. For Jesus, the Bible is a source of his delight, dependence. It's his defense in spiritual temptation. It defines his identity as the Son of God. It's his authority that God alone is the one that I serve. But when we zoom out from the passage and begin to examine our relationship to this book, 
What we find more often is we open this book and we find ourselves not finding delight, but disorientation, disillusionment around this book. The things that we read lead us to find to be displeased. We find displeasure so regularly if you've spent enough time in this book to doubts, ultimately into one or two directions of deconstruction or just deference. We just let somebody else handle the Bible because we clearly don't know what we're doing, or at least that's how it seems. And often we get to all of these places because we've tried reading the thing. We signed up for some read the Bible in a year and we're doing great through the first couple of chapters, talking snakes and women pulled from the side of man, you know, aside. And then we get further into Genesis or we get further into then the story of Exodus or Leviticus. And like by March, we're like, I am, you know, we're back to Netflix. Like this, this book is insane. And so we, we have this difficulty with this book because though we're attracted to the person of Jesus, we try to, you know, the metaphor of eat this book. And what we find is it feels like we're chewing on the very stones that the devil tempted Jesus with. Like something from a Tom and Jerry cartoon, we pick up this book expecting it to be this sustaining source of life and our teeth shatter. And we're surprised that we, we got played is what we feel like. You see, for us to experience the Bible like Jesus would seem to be about as great a miracle as stones being turned into bread. For most of us, if we're honest on a regular basis, this is our posture. It is completely different than the way that Jesus relates to the scriptures. So as we begin, let's just start with this question. Why this strange Bible to begin with? Why this strange book in the first place? You see, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, apprentices of him, if we want to know Jesus more, if we want to become more like Jesus, if we want to join in the perpetual revolution that he calls the kingdom of God, the Bible is is the center point that what Jesus has given us to do just that. As we just read, Jesus, when he's quoted, gone 40 days without food, arguably, I mean, you, you go, if I go four hours without food, like you get the most raw version of Ryan. And here you have Jesus, the most raw version of him. And when he is, when he is pricked, when he is poked, he bleeds Bible. That is at the core of who he is. I can't understand Jesus apart from the scriptures that he claims. Jesus had the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures memorized from back to front as a young man. When he started his ministry, it was with a reading from Isaiah. As a rabbi, he was an interpreter and teacher of the Bible. It's his vocation. When he wants to clarify his identity and arguments, he appeals to what? The scriptures. Even more, he claimed that the Bible is what he's all about. When he was dying on the cross, he's quoting from the Psalms. When he's resurrected, he's walking around what, what, still teaching the Bible. Simply put, there's no knowing Jesus, becoming more like him, doing what he did apart from the scriptures. I was talking about this with my wife at breakfast, and she's like, well, what about prayer? I would argue, you don't even know how to pray if you haven't spent time being saturated in the scriptures. Who is the God that you're talking to? Why should he care to, to your prayers? See, you, you can't have a framework for following Jesus apart from the scriptures. So with that being said, if we are seeking to be his disciples, apprentices of Jesus, our working assumption after looking at the life of Jesus must be that amid our difficulties that we have, for sure, it must not be the Bible that is broken. Look at Jesus' life. It must not be the Bible that is broken, but our paradigm of it, our way of reading the scripture that is broken. 
I love this in uh, just a, a page over, uh, 5.17. Jesus is in his Sermon on the Mount kicking things off. And what does he say? Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets is Jesus' way of talking about the Torah, the law, the prophets, the uh, Nevi'im, the, the Old Testament scriptures. He's talking about the Hebrew scriptures here. He says, don't think I've come to abolish. And I, I, I found this out this week. You start looking at the word translated there from abolish is kataluo. It's the word for destroy, demolish, literally to take something down that's been built, to deconstruct something. <laughs> Those who have ears, let them hear. Jesus says, I didn't come to kataluo, abolish, deconstruct, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all these things are accomplished. What if your primary need and mine to returning to a Jesus, a Christian faith, a scripture, whatever relationship to it, is not through a deconstruction but a fulfillment? is not through a tearing down but finding, I have been operating with these half-broken pieces of how this book works. And maybe what I need most is to allow Jesus to fulfill them for me and in me, to build a new framework for reading this, one that I can truly say that this, this nothing is gonna fall away from this book until all is accomplished with Jesus. To receive from Jesus his way of reading how to read the Bible so that you and I in our lives, our own wilderness wandering journeys led by the Spirit, undergoing all kinds of temptations ourselves, may look to this book as a source of delight, independence, defense, identity, authority. And that is what this series is all about. That's what we're going for over the next seven weeks, to read the Bible like Jesus, to operate with the assumption that if Jesus is as awesome as all of us think that he is, and I would argue even if you don't identify as a Christian, you at least think he's interesting because you're here on a Sunday. And so if this guy is so interesting to us, and when you poke him, he bleeds Bible, we have to understand how to read the book like him to get an understanding of who he is. Yes? Is that track? And so the goal of this series is, let's learn to read the Bible like Jesus. And so... A key point to this, a first step in the journey is in verse 5. I can't believe I've read past this for years. When the devil gives Jesus this vision up from the top of the Jerusalem temple, he tells him, throw yourself down, jump. But here's the big thing that you can't miss. I've read past this for years. The devil quotes the Bible. In verse 5, what does he say? If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He, he takes Jesus' whole it is written paradigm. He will give his angels orders concerning you. They will support you with their hands so you will not strike your foot against the stone. He quotes Psalm 91. And he gives this as a call for Jesus to play by the rules that the enemy is setting here. Did you know the devil reads the Bible and apparently has it memorized? He quotes from Psalm 91. There's an incredible background here of Psalm 91's use and the uh, time leading up to and around Jesus. Psalm 91 was like an exorcism psalm, a prayer. And so there's an irony here that the devil is using a prayer that's been used likely against him and his demons to now say like, oh, hey, let's use this one. But even more than that, what he's setting here is, oh, so much good stuff here, Psalm 91. Psalm 91, these, these very verses that we just read and the whole context of Psalm 91 over the past couple of years was claimed by particular Christians of why they have immunity from COVID. We won't get sick. We're gonna be fine because we belong to God. 
He's not going to let us get sick. You know, the, the, the psalm goes on to talk about pestilence and, and, uh, and pandemics. You know, they'd have the word for pandemics, but these diseases. And so they, they quoted Psalm 91 as the basis. What does Jesus say to that kind of reading of Psalm 91? Jesus told him, it is also written, don't test the Lord your God. What's the key takeaway as Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 verse 16? Though Jesus sees the Bible as a god source gift of delight, independence, defense, authority, identity, there remains wrong ways of reading it. And so what Jesus does here is he deconstructs the devil's offered paradigm of Scripture as promises of a genie. That's not how the book works. And without being, I'll say it, it's so profound. Psalm 91, we just talked about it. Those who are claiming this as their immunity from COVID or anything else in their life, they're reading the Bible the way the devil does, not the way Jesus does. Don't put God to the test. So here's the whole point. Though none of us here in this room today are the devil, I know that's a big assumption, but I'm willing to make it. We all too carry paradigms, perspectives for what the Bible is and how it works. Ones that don't result in a healthy, a Jesus way of reading the scriptures. Ways of reading the Bible that we've picked up from our background or tradition or maybe other teachers that, yes, often are based in good intuitions about what this book should do, but like a plank of wood run against the grain of how it works. And the evidence is all of the splinters that you get when you read the book. So for some, that is those that, you know, maybe are outside of the church or no longer identify as a Christian, who come to this book and see it as ancient human literature of a particular Middle Eastern tribe's accounts of what they understood as experiences of God. Beautiful and insightful in some places, archaic and backwards in others, but like all of human history, a mixed bag for our modern evolved sensibilities to take or leave as we see fit. Now, is the Bible ancient human literature and needs to be read as such? Yes, hearty, big, yes. That should not take a moment to think about. Yes, ancient human literature. Is that all that it is to Jesus and his followers? Stay tuned to this channel. Now for more a little bit here. For those of us that are raised inside the church, we too have paradigms that need to be examined. So I'm stealing this from one of my professors, Tim Mackey, that most of you would know from the Bible Project. He identifies that the primary problem with many of us raised in the church and the way that we read the scriptures is we, re we refer to the Bible as a reference book, an encyclopedia or a dictionary, or for you know, our, our you know, day and age, it's Wikipedia. And so if I want some, I'm confused, I have a question or I have a doubt, you know, I go to this cool thing in the back called a concordance. And I go, okay, you know, fear. And then I find all my little things that it says about fear. And then we, or we, I want a theology of this. And so I, oh, predestination. Okay, oh, you know, for some reason I'm only reading Paul. Interesting. Like I'm only reading, and specifically only some sections of Paul. And so there's this, this Wikipedia format of how we operate with the Bible as a reference book. We have questions, doubts, issues. We go and we get a handful of little passages that then we, you know, ingest and now we put that in our brain and we make that the way that we do this. So here, here's the three ways that a reference book um, way of reading the Bible breaks down. The first is, and, and here's the thing, I want you to look for yourself in these. As hard as it's going to be, I want you to look for yourself in these. This week will only serve as faithful as you identify what paradigms you currently have. So the first is the devotional grab bag. 
the devotional grab bag, we turn to the Bible for personal inspiration and connection to God. And so we turn to what inspires me and makes me feel God's presence. I, it's the, this is the stereotypical, the Bible open, the coffee in the morning. Like it's always people that don't have kids. Like there's like quiet how everything's clean. And they're like, oh, I'm just spending like 45 minutes just reflecting on Psalm 23. And you're like, what, how do you, right? And they only do Psalm 23. Like there's like three or four passages that every Instagram like post, it's either 1 Corinthians 13, Psalm 23, or John 3, 16. Like that's, that's all that's in the Bible for most people. And so the devotional grab bag comes to this way of reading the Bible that's largely, usually in short verses, normally from the Psalms or the epistles, and largely taken out of context. So the examples that you find of this is most Bible devotionals that you have sitting on your nightstand is one or two verses plucked out of context to give you some little thing for your heart so you feel good and you can go and follow Jesus today. This also shows up in artwork that people hang on their walls, the little Bible boxes that you open and they have little cards. I talked about this in a lecture once, making fun of Bible boxes, and someone was like, I have one of those. And I was like, oh no, like it was very awkward. So Bible boxes, here's my thing. I'll say this multiple times. It's not that the Bible can't do this, but is this the primary paradigm for reading it, okay? So Bible boxes, this is the Instagram stuff where, you know, you're, it's like, hey, I just, you know, somebody posts this thing, like, just to encourage you today. And you read the verse and you're like, like, you go read it in context. And you're like, what are you talking about? It's completely out of context. Or in uh, little Bible calendars like your grandma have. This is a Bible calendar. I pulled it off Twitter. So the, it's very, it's, it, you could tell it was taken on someone's like Blackberry Pearl, like back in 2003. <laughs> but So here's the little devotional, the inspirational grab bag right here. What's the verse say? If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And then what I I go into my week and I'm like, hmm, yes, if I worship God, everything that I'm looking for will be given to me. God, you know, and maybe you pull other Bible verses to affirm that. Luke 4 verse 7 is Luke's version of what we read in Matthew. And if you read this, look at Matthew 4 verse 9. Who's saying this? It's the devil. <laughs> this is what the devil said. If you worship me, all will be thine. And we're like, oh yes, hail Satan. Like we go out like, so I, I, now here, this is a far, like very hard example, but this is how many, the devotional grab bag works. We pluck the verses that sound good. They speak to our heart. Context be damned, literally. And we just take whatever we want. And and so even if it's the devil who said it, man, I'm going to claim that in the name of the Lord, the devotional grab bag. Now, here's the thing. Here's the good intuition here. Does the Bible, should it connect us to God and his purposes? Yes. But is this how the Bible does it? Random verses in a sea of just like, I don't know, other stuff. If you've read it this way long enough, you've probably begun to have your doubts. The second reference book paradigm is that of a theological dictionary. And this is where we turn to the Bible for precise definitions about theological issues, whether that's predestination or the problem of evil. And so whether we search online or we use our concordance, we find a handful of key verses that fill in what we think about a particular issue. Look, look, Paul said predestination. And so we fill that in with all of our assumptions about what predestination means. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's totally okay. This is an inside joke for people that are Calvinists in here. (laughs) And I used to be one too, and I still kind of am. I'm, I'm a big mess on this stuff because I read the Bible. Um, Theological dictionary, we come to the scriptures assuming that it's going to give us like a systematic theology for everything that we need to believe and why. 
And so oftentimes what happens here is we choose one selection of verses, leaving others behind, so that we're able to have a nice, neat little systematic theology and believe the right things. And then we like scream on Twitter at people who read their, own, their selection of Bible verses. They just leave behind the ones that I read. Now, the good intuition here is, yes, the Bible should shape my view of reality, the world, God, myself, and others. But is this what the Bible is? A systematic theology textbook. If you've begun to read it and found that most of it is narrative, and you go, man, a lot of my reading is just in the epistles and specifically just Paul. We're beginning to see, well, what am I supposed to do with the rest of all this book? Why is this here? Why didn't I just get the writings of Paul if it's a system it's meant to work this way? If you've read it this way long enough, you've begun to see the cracks. The third way that we are prone to read the Bible as a reference book is that of a moral handbook. And so we read the Bible for clear rules from God about how to live. So if I want clear rules about murder, flip, 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 10 commandments. You know, thou shalt not murder. All right, buddy. Or in this day and age, like questions of gender or sexuality. What should I, oh, the, 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 oh Leviticus. Or the, 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 I go here to First Timothy, right? And I read this, and then now I've got the, the, what thou shalt or thou shalt not do. But here's the thing. If you read this long enough, you find right alongside the Ten Commandments are moral commands about circumcision, pork, mixed fabrics, and other like archaic laws for people living in the Bronze Age. So what does that mean for all of my other moral laws that I'm getting from that part of the Bible? Or let's go to the New Testament because we get scared of the Old Testament. Even when we go, oh, Paul makes it so clear about what's allowed here. Like literally three verses later, he goes, hey, and make sure you don't drink just wine but, or just water, but drink a little wine for your stomach. Or right along, alongside his teachings that are clear moral commands, he says to greet one another with a holy kiss as all churches of the Lord should do. I'm not kissing any of you. Or he talks about not offering food, not eating food that's been sacrificed to idols, right alongside some of these commands that we receive. We read, honor your father and mother in Paul in Ephesians, and we're like, oh, yes and amen. And then literally the following paragraph, he says, slaves, obey your masters, your earthly masters. So it, if you've read it long enough, you begin to find this. There's a good intuition that the Bible is meant to instruct us how we flourish as humans in a right relationship with God, but it must not be the paradigm of a moral handbook if so. Now, some of you, I can see your Protestant itchiness and you're like, no, the Bible gives moral commands. Like if you just take that off, everybody's, I, yes, moral guidance, but not as a handbook in the way that you, clearly, because it's not working. The way that this often operates is Ezekiel bread from Trader Joe's. How many of you have had Ezekiel bread? Yeah, there you are, you healthy weirdos. Ezekiel, Ezekiel bread, where does it come from? Ezekiel 4, verse 9, as described in the Holy Scripture verse. Um, and then you can go to the next one. Here's, here's the verse, here it is. You can go to the next slide. Here, here's the verse. Take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt, put them in a single container, and make them into bread for yourself. So obviously this isn't a moral command, but this is how it feels reading the Bible very often. Oh, yes. This is how we shall read, you know, eat bread here unto. Verse 12 through 15. How do you cook it? You can go to the next one. You will eat it as you would a barley cake and bake it over dried human excrement in their sight. <laughs> the Lord said, this is how the Israelites will eat their bread, ceremonially unclean among the nations where I will exile them. So the whole point is, 
Ezekiel here is a prophet and he's showing off, not just in his words, but his actions, what Israel's unrepentant sin is gonna lead to. It's gonna lead to you guys not living the good life. Your, the way you will have to cook your food is gonna be over dried excrement. So Ezekiel is enacting and showing so that they might repent and go, I don't wanna eat poop bread. And so he goes, you know, there. So I just, this is my favorite part here. So Ezekiel goes, Lord God, I've never been defiled from my youth until now. Impure food has never entered my mouth. And I love the CSB's translation. He replied to me, look, I'll let you use cow dung instead of human excrement and you can make your bed over that. The Bible is not boring, you guys. So I use this to say, does the Bible guide our morality and our character? Absolutely. But ripping cherry-picked verses will only lead to like poop bread. <laughs> so before we move into asking how to read the Bible, here's the first question, the, the, the rest of our time today. What is the Bible? What is the paradigm that we're meant to be reading it from? Because again, I'm not against you posting Bible verses on Instagram, but maybe, maybe not. Um, I'm not against you posting Bible verses in your house. Like I, I do have Bible verses up in my house. I'm not against the fact that what we find within the scriptures can be brought in and condensed into a systematic theology. That's Gary was here last, Dr. Gary Bashir's last week. That's his thing. He's a professor of theology. But what makes him a great systematic theologian is his understanding of how the Bible works. I'm not against this, saying that the scriptures don't guide our morality, but not in this framework. And here's the thing. For most of you here, the reason for your difficulty in reading the scripture, the deconstruction, the doubt, and the difficulties that you have is most often, this is, I'm not saying that if, if we get the right paradigm, it's always gonna be easy, but more of, most of the splinters that you get from the Bible are because you're walking in a broken paradigm for what this thing is and how it works. So you, you assume that it's the devotional handbook or the devotional grab bag, and you just so what do I do with the rest of this book then that isn't speaking to my soul, or at least in the way that I want it to? Or you come looking for the, the theology stuff and you find passages that counter, contradict the systematic theology that you have. Or you do the moral handbook thing and you end up with the Ezekiel bread. Yes, the Bible speaks and moves within the best parts of those good intuitions, but it does it in a way that most of us have not learned how to read it. So we ask, what is the Bible? How is it to be read this is the question that we're looking at over the next seven weeks. Jesus and the authors of Scripture have a paradigm for us that, like I said, carries the best intuitions of our pre-existing paradigms, but in a way that's different than many of us have been trained to read it. And so, as the intro to the series, seven parts of this paradigm of Jesus from Scripture, seven weeks on each one. This is where we're going, and all seven of these are alluded to in some way right here in Matthew chapter 4. Some of these you might feel are a stretch. That's okay, I have, I have more Bible to prove it, but for the sake of getting these seven in here and showing, there's enough of them represented here. So here's the thing. First one, what is the Bible? How does Jesus read the Bible next week? It's a human and divine word. The scriptures are the inspired, or, or literally in 2 Timothy, the word is God-breathed partnership and collaboration between humanity and God and should be read as such. Not doing an either or, but a both and. That yes, appreciating this as like human literature and understanding grammar and how this works, but also receiving this as the authority for my life. It's human and divine. We see this in Jesus in Matthew 4.4, 4, where he says, it is written, quoting Deuteronomy, and he refers to what has been written as every word that comes, not just from Moses, but from the mouth of God. So next week is it's human and divine word. 
the following week, we'll be looking at the Bible as a unified library. That this book is actually a well-constructed and built-together library of 66 books that is composed of many authors and many literary styles, and yet all of them in this one library have one story that they're telling together. And so there's a unity to this thing that you cannot even pull verses or passages or books out of context, but they are read with one another and together as this one unifying story. We see this in Matthew 4, verse 7, where you know, the devil gives him one interpretation of Scripture. And how does he challenge that genie way of reading the Bible? It is also written. He appeals to Scripture as the way that he interprets Scripture. There is a cohesive unity to the way that we read the Bible. It is unified. Third, the Bible is messianic literature. That is, its stories and themes find their fulfillment in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the gift of his spirit. The main thing that that unified story is all about is the Messiah, is the Christ, is Jesus, the Son of God. Where do we see this in, in, the, in the story of Jesus in Matthew 4? What is the repeated question that the devil asks? If you are the Son of God, if you are the Messiah, if you are the anointed one, do this, do that, do this. And what does Jesus say? Three times he answers to the, if you are the Son of God, it is written. For Jesus, his understanding of what it means to be the Messiah is filled out by the scriptures. Even the most important, we didn't even really spend that much time on it, but the, um, in verse eight, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, I will give you all these if you will fall down and worship me. What he's offering him here is the very thing that Jesus is going to get. But the devil's offering it to him in a way apart from the cross and apart from suffering and apart from a life of dedication and what he says, worshiping the Lord your God and serving him only, even unto death. And so for Jesus, the Bible's messianic literature, it fills out what it means for him to be the Messiah. Fourth, it is communal literature. That is, the Bible is designed to be read, studied within community. It's so funny, I was looking at like Unsplash, which is like a stock photo website this week. And I was like, Bible study, you know, looking for images for backgrounds and stuff. And literally every single picture was someone alone with their Bible. Now again, I'm not against your quiet time or whatever, but what is the primary paradigm for how we're meant to read it? Would the, reading it in community should be the primary mode of operation as opposed to reading it isolated by ourselves. So it's communal literature that we read, not just within our local context of collective, but also the global church, trusting that, that this book has been given not to me, but to the church, and we read it best as a church, reading it with the global church, with the local church, and even with the historical church, reading it with those that have gone before and understanding, man, when we read this, with mo- it chips away a lot of the broken paradigms that we bring to the word. And so it's communal literature. Fifth is it's ancient literature. Um, that's Matthew 4, verse 7 in Greek. And I put this up here to drive the point because Jesus doesn't say like the Bible is, you know, ancient literature. But here's the whole thing. We can forget when we're reading this from our English translations, what we're reading here is an, are ancient documents. In some cases, going all the way back to the Bronze Age of Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek of context and cultures that are different than mine. And when we come to the Bible expecting it to speak to me immediately and easily as a 21st century person on the west side of Los Angeles, it's it's, it's not going to work that way. 
that, that part of reading the scriptures is, is loving our ancient neighbor as ourself. In the same way that you wouldn't go over to France and walk around speaking English asking where's the McDonald's because that's, that would be dumb because you are in a different context now. When we come to the scriptures, we need to have a similar appreciation for the fact that this is a, well, every time you open the Bible, it is a cross-cultural experience. You're reading from an honor-shame culture, in many cases, a patriarchal culture. You're reading from one that most people are living off very little, like hand-to-mouth every single day. And you're reading from people with a different view of reality than most of us have been constructed in post-enlightenment, you know, post-post-modernity. And so we have to read it like good interpreters. And so we're going to do a whole week on that. Um, and so the whole thing is not that everyone in here needs to learn Greek and Hebrew. There are so many tools that can help you do this. Study Bibles that this is very actually e more easy today than ever before to appreciate and read the Bible as ancient literature. And so we're going to spend a whole week on how to do that. Six, the Bible is meditation literature. That is, it is designed to interpret itself. And it encourages a lifetime of rereading and reflection. And that, that when I just, that, that if you read this like a novel or like a textbook, it, it just, it's not, you read it one time and you're going to find something every single different time. In Matthew 4, you can just read this meditation literature wise and find something every single time. Today we've read it meditating on Jesus's understanding of scripture. If we read through it, looking at it, what Gary did on Sunday night, spiritual warfare, there's a whole bunch of other things that we can look at here. When we read through this, looking at Jesus as a new Adam in the wilderness, being tempted, being asked, did God really say? We see Jesus is replaying the story of Adam being tempted by the serpent in Genesis 1. If we reread this of Jesus as being a new Moses, a new Israel out in the wilderness being tempted before coming into the promised land, we find that very much the same story is being played out. Every single time that you read it, you are finding something new. When you come over and read Isaiah, the next time you come back and read the Gospel of John, you're going to see all these new things. And vice versa, you read John and then you go back to Isaiah and you're going to find all these other new things. It's meditation literature. It is designed to be read over and over and over again and worked into the very folds of your brain and your heart and your life. How do we see this in Jesus? He's not turning pages out in the wilderness. Uh, what did you, what's the offering? You know, jump off this tower and he's going, um, it is written like, he's, he, it's, he's quoting it. He has it memorized. He's someone that's been meditating on the words of, in particular, Deuteronomy here for his whole life. And so it just comes out like that. To be a good Bible reader is not just to get the information, but to let it form your very self. Finally, seventh is wisdom literature. And that is that the diverse literary styles in the Bible reveal God's wisdom and they transform us. So different than a moral handbook, what you're going to find is that as you meditate on the moral commands of Scripture given in different times, will some of those be an easy one-for-one -one application? Yes. Will there be other things that will require a meditation on that then forms you into a character, a different kind of person? The way that Tim Mackey put it so good is the point of meditating on Scripture and it being wisdom literature is it shapes you into the kind of people that need thin rule books. Because you have a character that just walks around. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so whether it's, you know, maybe the Ten Commandments or maybe something, you know, whatever that might be, we're going to get into that on the Scripture's wisdom literature. And again, we see this in Jesus where when he's offered with literally all the world and he's, he's hungry, we're getting Jesus at his most raw, 
what is, what is the thing that comes up from him in the final thing? Get away, Satan. Worship the Lord your God only. Serve him only. And so today is the start of our journey into how to read the Bible like Jesus. How to read the Bible with a, a paradigm that is native to its authors. And so to summarize these seven things in one sentence, you're going to hear me saying over and over again, the Bible is a library of ancient writings, both divine and human, that tell a unified story leading us to Jesus and forming us as his people. This is what we come to when we open this book. And so your practice this week, you'll see behind me, as you go into your discipleship groups, you'll find these questions and more at collectivechurch.com slash current series in the practice page. But the practice for this week is just to discuss your relationship to the Bible. As you gather to talk through a handful of these questions, what role did the Bible play in your earliest church experiences and how has that shaped you? What does your current practice of reading scripture look like? How did you get to this point, good or bad? What difficulties do you face when reading from the Bible? And what do you think Jesus is inviting you into in this series? And so for some of you, you could take the picture and just kind of reference these in your discipleship group. If you want to literally have like a pray for five minutes and then talk about this, whatever your DG needs, these are the questions to work through this week. And so in the following weeks, there are gonna be more practical application through our weekly Bible passage of really getting into reading the Bible in this way. But this week is just to begin the conversation with your discipleship group. How do you relate to the scriptures before we actually get into it? So as we close today, I wanna to return to where we kind of began with that question of why. Why do we read the Bible to begin with? Why are we taking seven weeks? People would argue, you know, like the church metric people are like, oh, the fall, that's the big season when the, everybody's coming to church. Why would we spend the fall seven weeks on just learning how to read it? You see, as important as how we read the Bible is, the first and most important question that you must have a heartfelt answer for yourself is why. Why read the Bible in the first place? You see, even if you're here every single Sunday, even if you go through the discipleship group, even if you read how not to read your Bible, if you get a paradigm for reading the scripture from Jesus without a deep from your soul answer to the reason why, all of your reading will still come up empty. As Jesus said to a group of Bible nerds, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. So why do we read, study, memorize, pray, sing, and trust the Bible? Andrew Wilson, in his wonderful little book, Unbreakable, says this. Ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who was God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he acts and talks as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Why do we read the Bible? Because we believe this is the way that his authority is expressed within his disciples. And that as we become a people who read the Bible in the way of Jesus, trusting and following him, it shapes us into people like Jesus. And so maybe there's a handful of different groups in here today of where we go from here. First, for those of you that would maybe identify as the skeptic, searching and looking into who Jesus is, Jesus invites you, as we just read from a moment ago, to look into the scriptures which bear witness about me and the eternal life that is found in him. If you are looking to understand Jesus more, 
This is the place that Jesus has said, come and find me. Understand the story that I claim to fulfill. Come and see the, the early examples of what it means to follow me. Sit in the gospels and listen to my teaching. Watch my miracles. See the kind of person that I am. As Matthew 11, Jesus' invitation, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me set my yoke, my way of life upon you. It is, I am humble and gentle in heart. And you find Jesus' easy yoke by studying his life in the Gospels. And so if you're the skeptic searching, Jesus invites you, check me out. Poke, prod like Thomas into my life by doing it in the Gospels. For those of you that maybe identify as a Christian, but you're not sure how much longer, you feel like you are the doubtful deconstructor, I would just want to remind you, if, even if you're doing that amid some love for Jesus, what did Jesus say in Matthew 5? I did not come to de deconstruct the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. And in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your questions, all valid things to hold, Jesus' invitation would still be that maybe the thing that you need most is the fulfillment of the law and prophets rather than their deconstruction. And the invitation is to lean in with your questions, to get off Twitter and Instagram and to read the scriptures in the context of the historical church. Here's what's awesome. This thing has been read for thousands of years, which may make you like, oh, how can I trust it more next week? Here's what's great. You have thousands of years of people meditating on and commenting on and interpreting this book. You have, I guarantee you, you will have no question or doubt or issue with this book that has not been adequately handled by hundreds and thousands of people over the generations. And so lean in, ask those questions. For some of you that feel in this season like an apathetic apprentice of Jesus, sure, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, And so maybe you do it every couple of days or once a week. I just want to invite, what is, what is the opening words of Jesus in his temptation? Quoting from Deuteronomy. Man, one per, person shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says the sustenance that you're looking for, the reason that you feel spiritually empty, could be all sorts of things. But I would argue Jesus seems to say one of the first things to ask is, where's, where's the bread that comes from heaven? Where's the word that comes from the mouth of God in your life? So this isn't to shame you in your apathy, but to see Jesus inviting you into his way, a way of a life that is fulfilled as you're having the scriptures fulfilled in and through you. And then finally, for those of you that feel like a failing follower today, that maybe you're like, I haven't read the Bible in forever and the Bible is nowhere near my biggest issue in following Jesus right now. What does Jesus say? In Luke's gospel, after his resurrection, we get another, it is written from Jesus. He says, it is written, and then he says what the Bible is all about. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead so that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be, pro be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. In the midst of your feelings of failure, this story is about God's loyal love in the midst of your failures, in the midst of your mess-ups, in the midst of your brokenness. And his forgiveness through his death and resurrection, it's what the whole book is building up to and about. And it's inviting you into a new way of life on the other side of confession and repentance. That your life as you currently feel it is not the end of your story. And there is a new trajectory available to you by coming to what this story is all about, the death and resurrection and the ruling reign of Jesus, and to allow that story to not just become your authority by how I live, but your identity. To receive over you that same word that came to Jesus at the end of chapter three, right before this story, to hear over your life, this is my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. 
And man, if that's the, if that's the revolving story that I'm going to find in this, in this book, like Netflix has got nothing on this. And so whatever questions, doubts, or difficulties, or failures you bring to the book, over the next seven weeks, Jesus' answer to you and me will be the same, the same answer that he gave to the enemy. Jesus, in the midst of our doubts and our difficulties, gives us the same answer that he gives to the enemy three times over. It is written, it is written, it is written. What you need most in the midst of all those things is not to run from Scripture, but to sit with Jesus and learn what is written. Let's pray.